with governments working to roll out COVID-19 vaccines more broadly, some Canadian jurisdictions are considering vaccine passports, which would be proof that the holder has been vaccinated. These documents would be intended to facilitate international travel, but we must be vigilant against any efforts to deploy them domestically that would discriminate against people who have not been inoculated. This is the first paragraph of an article we saw the other day in the Globe and Mail. The headline of the article, COVID-19 vaccine passports would discriminate against Canadians if used here at home. The author of the piece is a law professor from the University of Manitoba, and he's with us this morning. Professor Brandon Trask is the is the culprit behind these sentiments in the Globe and Mail. Professor Trask, Brandon, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me, Sterling. Well, it's good to have you with us this morning. Uh, let's talk first of all about the notion of vaccine passports, period, Brandon, because I think by international convention, any Canadian who wants to do anything outside of Canada when it's uh, uh, permissible to do so is pretty much going to have to have some some documentation of vaccination. Uh, would you concede that point? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we need to acknowledge, uh, first off, that uh, Canada has has no control essentially over what other countries demand of people crossing their borders. Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I have no problem with uh, vaccine passports that are used exclusively to facilitate international travel. Um, not only does Canada not have control over what other countries require, um, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms also wouldn't apply uh, outside of, of Canada for the most part, uh, certainly not in relation to what others uh, might require of Canadians travelling. Uh, and provincial human rights codes wouldn't uh, wouldn't apply either. Yeah, there was a time, and it's been discontinued for some reason, but there was a time when you were an international traveler. You carried your passport and, in many cases, an international certificate of vaccination, Brandon, because if you were going to some continents, they wouldn't let you pass the, the gate at the airport if you hadn't proof of, uh, of vaccination against smallpox and certain other malaria and so on. So that, that uh, practice, has been around for a long time. It's likely that if we go this route in 2021, a, a physical document may be required. I'm thinking probably something you could show on your phone would be a little more 21st century version of that. What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, just in relation to the to the phone aspect, uh, you know, as long as uh, sort of data privacy and, and security is dealt with, I think that that uh, uh, is is I agree with you, Sterling. Likely the the direction that that folks are. Uh, going to go, the different countries are going to go. Um, but, you know, certainly uh, there would need to be some, some pretty stringent data protections there just to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, uh, private health information, especially uh, tied to, to personal health uh, identification numbers, wouldn't get out. Yeah. And uh, again, those uh, sorts of uh, data protection and privacy protection realities are probably going to have to be dealt with at the multinational level, too, given the need for coordination for this uh, this display of vaccination. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely would have to have uh, uh, some international cooperation, just as we do, frankly, for, for passports. Uh, I know, sure. uh, you know, a, a lot of different countries are in, uh, you know, sort of constant contact to make sure uh, that the passport system is, is uh, made legitimate, uh, just so that, uh, you know, these documents aren't, aren't e- easy to forge, um, and that, uh, you know, uh, somebody uh, at the border acting as a border guard uh, knows that this document being presented is legitimate. 
Indeed. So let's uh, let's move to the home front because that's what brought you to our attention in the first place, Brandon Trask, because of this article you wrote in the Globe saying that vaccine passports would discriminate against Canadians if used here at home. So how would uh, using a domestic passport uh, in Canada be discriminatory? Sure. So I, I identify a number of uh, different issues with using domestic uh, vaccine passports. Um, uh, again, just for listeners just joining us, I have no problem with international vaccine passports, right. uh, but uh, but domestically, uh, you know, I, I think there's a huge problem, especially considering our, our legal principles and our rights. Uh, huge issue uh, discriminating against people in relation to uh, health characteristics and circumstances, which would include whether somebody's received a, a vaccine. Um, so specifically, uh, you know, with regard to uh, our charter rights, uh, the charter, of course, applies to, to public institutions, public bodies. Uh, and so I, I, you know, I'm certainly of the view that uh, governments would not be able to uh, directly mandate um, uh, vaccine receipt uh, and, and so, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the vaccine passport issue really is tied to this notion of mandatory vaccination. Right. And I think that's important to, to underscore. Uh, so just if we could uh, just for a second talk about uh, mandatory vaccination, um, because, I, again, I think ideally uh, sort of everybody was, would be in agreement with the statement that, you know, from a public health perspective, I think governments uh, all over the world would, would much rather just mandate uh, vaccines. Sure. Um, and so, you know, that, that has uh, certainly been the approach in the U.S. Uh, for many, many years back to um, there's a Supreme Court case uh, with uh, the U.S. Uh, from 1905, the Jacobson case, uh, that uh, found uh, mandating vaccines is, is actually completely constitutional in the U.S. Yes. Uh, that was um, in relation to a smallpox vaccine, actually. Um, we don't have that same sort of history in Canada, and that's... I think very important to, to underscore. Well, um, can, can I interrupt just to the just to the absolutely. extent that when absolutely. I was a kid, when I was a kid in the fifties, and I'm dating yep. myself here. This is this is all, <laughs> all suddenly embarrassing. No, but really, when I was a kid in the fifties, uh, we had the polio crisis. Right, kids were living yep. in iron lungs for crying out loud, Brandon. Yeah. And when I went to school, we all got our booster. And, and if you didn't get your booster, you didn't go to school. Full stop. No ifs, ands, buts, or exceptions. That was the rule, yep. and that was how it worked. So, uh, uh, and this was in the province of Ontario where I grew up. But yep. uh, that, so, it, it, to the extent that there that there was some compulsory uh, vaccination requirements, there is some history of it in Canada. Yes. Well, so uh, just want to point out that would have been pre-charter, of course, uh, and so you know, charter. Uh, from 18, uh, sorry, 1982, uh, you know, was a big game changer. I think with regard to uh, to what Canada may or may not be able to do, or the provinces uh, may or may not be able to do. Um, so according so, according to the charter, because you're absolutely right, my yeah. uh, my elementary school experience happened well before the Charter of Rights <laughs> and Freedoms. But that, is language in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms today, Brandon, that would forbid what the Ontario education system did to children my age in the 50s? Is that no longer allowed? Well, I think we have to look at... Uh, so just to give some sort of legal background here, I guess, uh, you know, right now they're... Um, sort of two provinces, I guess, that uh, purport to have sort of a mandatory vaccine uh, approach for school children. Um, 
New Brunswick and Ontario, but I say purport because there are some significant exemptions available. Right. Um, so, you know, not only is there the medical exemption for people who, you know, for medical reasons, including allergies that of may course. not be able to be vaccinated, but there's also uh, sort of a, a conscience-based exemption or religious-based uh, exemption or, right. or just a parental objection more generally for um, for those not wanting uh, their children to be vaccinated. Uh, and of course, BC has, has made a move uh, not to, strictly speaking, mandate vaccines, but uh, uh, saying that parents must provide immunization records for their children. Right. Um, and uh, students could be ordered to stay home from school uh, in the event of there being a... Um, uh, an outbreak at a school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, with regard to the charter, uh, it, uh, you know, th- these, these rights are not absolute. Um, there are, you know, limits under section one of the charter. Um, as we found uh, out in the past 12 months, branded with all of these public <laughs> health orders that in many cases override the charter of rights and freedoms. Well, and, and, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see, uh, how some of these, these legal challenges play out. Uh, you know, right now, uh, frankly, there have not been all that many court sittings, uh, across the country. Right. Um, and so, you know, where there have been challenges, these have mostly been for, uh, sort of, you know, seeking injunctions against these public health orders and, uh, tests relating to obtaining an injunct- injunction are extremely high for the, the party seeking, uh, an injunction. So, uh, you know, just because, uh, uh, public health order may end up surviving an injunction, um, request, that, that may not mean that it will actually pass uh, the ultimate challenge uh, when it goes to a full, a full hearing. In conversation with law professor Brandon Trask from the University of Manitoba, we're talking about vaccine passports. And just, by the way, to clarify the sentiments of my guest with regards to taking the vaccine, here's the last paragraph of the piece he wrote recently in the Globe and Mail. I, for one, will certainly opt to receive any COVID-19 vaccine when it is offered, but I have no intention of providing a vaccine passport to anyone other than for international travel purposes. A healthy Canadian society is and must stay a free and democratic one. So, Brandon, you're not an anti-vaxxer. You're happy to take your vaccine when your turn to roll up your sleeve comes around. It's the notion of the vaccine passport that you see as undemocratic. How so if, if it's uh, used on uh, uh, in Canada for domestic purposes? How does that become undemocratic? Thank you. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and thanks for the clarification, Sterling. I was going to say, I uh, want to make it very clear, I'm, I'm very pro-vaccine. Yeah, I, you know, I, I knew would you like were. To see... <laughs> wanted, wanted to make sure our listeners understood that too, Brandon. Yes, yes. No, I would like to see absolutely everybody who's, who's able to receive the vaccine, uh, receive the vaccine. Uh, I, I want to see people decide uh, to act for the common good. But sure. this really goes back to, you know, Canada... Um, uh, especially since the Charter has emphasized uh, having people uh, voluntarily choose to act in the common good. And I think that that is really, really important to continue. Uh, you know, respect for personal autonomy in Canada is absolutely key. Um, and so even the wording of Section 1, right, which, which can be used to, to place uh, reasonable limits on freedoms, uh, these limits uh, must be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society sure. by the government you know, that's trying to, to institute these limits. So, um, you know, it, it really underscores how important our rights are. Uh, and so even though, you know, uh, again, very, very pro-vaccine, um, I'm also very pro-rights. And so uh, as soon as we start to say, okay, well, in difficult times, our rights don't really mean anything, 
uh, it, it erodes the power of those rights. Oh, here's here's an argument that's being put by put up forward by some of the health uh, care professionals in British Columbia, and you have a very vibrant pork industry in Manitoba, so you can appreciate this. They're saying because we have evidence, Brandon, we have abundant evidence of COVID nineteen outbreaks in in food processing facilities, meat plants, poultry plants, and the like. There's quite a history in the past 12 months of this. It's it's quite a measurable metric. So they're suggesting that if people who are employed in these very important industries be obliged to be vaccinated, that's a line that they have crossed in your eyes, correct? So I guess just a bit of a caveat there, because, you know, with law, we, we often have, uh, we have principles, uh, we do have some exceptions, but at the end of the day, we need to, we need to ensure that we stick to our principles, uh, by and large. Now, there may be um, some room uh, through, the, through the courts uh, for some of these requirements for people in the labor context. Right. Uh, so maybe, you know, for healthcare workers, uh, potentially extending to, to places like, uh, like meatpacking operations mm-hmm. where people are working in really close quarters. Um, you know, I, I think we, we have to be really careful going down that road, but I think that that, you know, the courts may have some, uh, some tolerance for uh, requiring proof of vaccination to work in those types of uh, uh, super vulnerable sectors, uh, because there are some, you know, under the, the human rights, codes, which do differ in each province, yeah. uh, there's uh, an allowance for uh, some discrimination, even on, on uh, in areas where discrimination normally wouldn't be allowed. There can be uh, some discrimination permitted if there's a bona fide uh, and reasonable cause uh, to allow for that discrimination. But I, again, I, it's on... I, yeah, I read between the lines, though, that your concern is about those who, uh, and I've just cited a very specific example that you indicate yeah. the courts may have some some tolerance for, but you can also see this expanding and being projected upon employees who's, who, in terms of obligatory vaccination, it's just not there. Exactly, and that's the fear, is, is essentially, uh, you know, regardless of industry, this, this could uh, uh end up expanding to the point that, you know, okay, somebody who's not uh, vaccinated or, or unable to be vaccinated means that means that they're not employable. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, that's uh, certainly too far. Yeah. Uh, or that they can't go to the theater or the cinema or the store. Uh, and, you know, where does it end? So, so do you see that as a possibility as we, you know, we're still a little panicky. We're still way behind the rest of the world in terms of getting vaccinated on a per capita basis. But eventually we will cross that line, hopefully by July 1st, certainly by Labor Day. Uh, Is it likely that at some point this year to go to the movies, you may have to show some proof of vaccination at the box office, Brandon? That's uh, certainly a fear. And, uh, you know, uh, listening to what uh, Health Minister Christine Elliott has said in Ontario, uh, you know, there seemed to be at least early on uh, some implication that that might be a, a reality, and mm. that's really, uh, frankly, what uh, uh, got me thinking seriously about this issue, and and made me realize I think I need to raise uh, uh, raise some awareness about uh, the concerns here. Oh boy! And such a parade of challenges to that sort of legislation and those sorts of requirements. I mean, it really would be a parade, and it really would form rather quickly, don't you think? Absolutely, and uh, you know, I, I think uh, for those uh, of your listeners who've who've seen the the Gattaca movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dating myself a little bit, this goes goes back a ways, but mm. uh, uh, yeah, I think it was Ethan Hawke and uh, yeah. uh, Jude Law, and uh, you know, essentially, uh, uh, you know, getting to the point where we're discriminating against people uh, based on their biology, and that is hugely problematic in my eyes. 
It's a great article, Brendan. Thank you for publishing it, and thank you for making a little bit of time for us this weekend to join us to expand on a little bit. I'm commending it to my listeners from the Globe and Mail just this week on the the 18th. COVID-19 vaccine passports would discriminate against Canadians if used here at home. Have a look. This is a, a discussion, a conversation that is very much underway and is going to be lively for many weeks to come. And Brandon Trask, we appreciate your contribution this morning, and I I look forward to an opportunity to speak to you again on this matter. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks so much, Sterling. My pleasure, sir. Brandon Trask at the University of Manitoba, where he is a professor of law. It's a pleasure to welcome Michael Chong to the program. Mr. Chong is a conservative member of parliament for the Southern Ontario riding of Wellington Halton Hills. He is also the foreign affairs critic for the official opposition. And he's here to talk to to us about a few things this morning, not the least of which is a story that appeared in the National Post a couple of days ago. Canadian group echoes China party line on Uyghurs after getting $160,000 in public funds. The subheader, we should not be funding groups acting as a mouthpiece for Beijing, says Conservative MP Michael Chong. Thank you for saying that, Mr. Chong. Good morning, Michael, and welcome to the program. Great to be here, Sterling. Now, let's talk a little bit about this. I got a lot on my plate for you this morning, Mr. Chong, on this Conservative Party weekend, and there's all sorts of things to talk about. But this is a big story, and this story about the influence, the growing pervasive influence of Beijing on the Canadian scene, and particularly as as the infiltration of Canadian domestic politics continues. This is something we've been following very closely on this program, Michael, for the better part of a year. And uh, this confirms, again, what we know to be very, very prevalent in Canada, pro-Beijing sentiment, that's fine, it's a free country. But taxpayer dollars going to groups uh, mouthpiecing for Beijing, that's a little beyond the pale, don't you think? I agree. I think any citizen of this country, uh, any group in this country are free to criticize anyone they want. It's a free country and we believe in free expression, Uh, but they shouldn't be doing it with government money. Uh, That's where I draw the line. Well, let's talk about this particular group, the Council of Newcomer Organizations. Uh, In some cases, they have connections to former liberal members of parliament. Uh, They're very active and very, very pro-Beijing. So how is is this prominent uh, pro-government of China party, how is this organization, Michael, able to jockey it into a position where they receive taxpayer dollars? Well, I think it's part of a broader pattern coming from this Liberal government. Uh, For years, we have been calling on the government to acknowledge the threat that China is posing to our citizens, to our companies, and to our values. And for years, they resisted. Uh, For years, they didn't see the threat. Now they have, and they have no plan to respond to the threat. And they continue to fund groups like this one. Um, and it's it's inexplicable. Um, we're calling on them to come forward with a robust plan to counter China's foreign interference and influence operations here in Canada, something they've yet to do. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it seems that, uh, frankly, they, there is no, uh, they've been kind of boxed in by the Meng Wanzhou uh, and two Michaels situation to the point where uh, even though this is, this is, this is the, the hardest part for many Canadians to understand, Michael, because over the past year, polling by umpteen different organizations has shown a growing sense of resentment and frustration to the point where last time around, 80% of Canadians polled said we need to develop a backbone when it comes to China. The weakness is embarrassing. Well, I share that sentiment. And I think that being passive and equivocating in in the face of China's threats doesn't work. In fact, it does the opposite. It only emboldens China to continue threatening our citizens, our companies, and our values. I think what we need to do is take a look at what countries like Australia are doing. Australia is much more exposed to China than we are. They do much more trade with China, and they've taken a much stronger stand against China's threat. Yes. And I think that's a much more effective approach. And frankly, if we're going to ask our allies and partners like the United States, uh, like Japan, like India, to help us stand up against China, we have to do some of the heavy lifting ourselves. Well, no question about it. And Australia is, as you say, and you point out quite accurately, they're much more intertwined with China than Canada is, and they are expecting repercussions. They've already had some, some, some pretty serious uh, hack attacks, but also on the on the uh, obvious economic level, they're being they're being hit. And they will be hit harder because of the uh, official and very visible uh, opposition to China. But Australia is taking that on anyway, going, okay, so we're going to take a few hits, but we have to stand up full stop. And and Canada, it seems, even though we're not, uh, the economic hit wouldn't be as severe as Australia, Michael, we're still reluctant to take a stance. Well, I think that's in large part due to the current Liberal government. I think it's long indicated it wanted closer and deeper ties with the communist regime in Beijing. Um, And for years, they tried to deepen that relationship, tried to broaden that relationship. They came to office trying to negotiate a free trade deal with China. They joined the the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Uh, They spoke in glowing terms of the bilateral relationship while evidence was mounting of the increasing threats that China was posing to Canada and to our values, while evidence was mounting about the genocide taking place in Xinjiang province. Uh, And so now here we are, years after these threats began, with yet no real plan from this government on how to counter them. Mm -hmm. And so I think our passive approach is really due to the current government's naivete about China. Indeed. And I should point out to our listeners, uh, Mr. Chong, that it was your motion on the uh, declaration of genocide by the People's Republic of China government against the Uyghurs that was passed by the Canadian House of Commons 266 to zero, despite, of course, the abstention of the entire government, the entire cabinet of Justin Trudeau. Uh, I want to take a, a, a second, though, Michael, and and, and look at, at this, uh, the, 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 the Michael Spaver trial. You've had some remarks already about this. This is a consequence of uh, Canada-China relations. The trial itself, of course, was a sham. No one was allowed any access. There was no declared verdict, but their their prosecution record at trial is 99%. Yeah, we are, we are very concerned about the wrongful, unlawful detention of 
Mr. Saver and Mr. Kovrig. It's a violation of international law. China is not upholding its obligations under international treaties. We're also equally, if not more, concerned about the trial of Mr. Saver and the upcoming trial of Mr. Kovrig. As you pointed out, uh, these trials are not done in courts that are uh, independent from the Communist Party, right. um, and the conviction rate is nearly 100%. Uh, we think that these are very concerning uh, events, and the government needs to realize that its approach to China isn't helping to the, in situations like this. It's further emboldening China, and we believe that the government needs to take a much stronger line. We also believe that the government needs to work much more closely with partners and allies in order to help secure the release of Mr. Kohlberg and Mr. Saber, particularly working with the United States. The U.S. has yet to uh, indicate that it will take measures to help us secure the release of these two Canadians. Right. Uh, and uh, it's interesting that the United States and China are meeting in Alaska this weekend, and uh, the the two Michaels uh, is uh, expected to be a, not a very big part, but a part of that conversation. That's, well, uh, the that is yet to be seen. Uh, what I will say is this: we, you know, we welcome the arrival of the new Biden administration, President Biden, President Harris, Vice President Harris. Uh, and so far, there's been a good start to that relationship between the Trudeau government and the Biden administration. But at this point, on the issue of Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spaver, there's just been a lot of talk. Right. We've not heard a lot of specific measures that are going to be taken. And it's the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, called on China to release the uh, Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spaver unconditionally, right, yes. which suggests that the U.S. isn't prepared to make any moves to help secure the release. And furthermore, there were departmental officials who indicated several days ago uh, from the government of Canada that uh, the U.S. wasn't prepared to take any measures until they completed the review of their China policy in about four months. So at this point, um, there's been a lot of goodwill between Canada and the United States right. on the issue of securing the release of the two Michaels, but we've yet to hear any concrete measures the U.S. is prepared to take to help us secure the release. Are you expecting, by the way, because the, the Liberals are particularly sensitive to the election they desperately want to call this year, uh, and they do poll to a fault, uh, and they must be aware of the growing sentiment nationwide, and it doesn't matter which geographical part of the country we're talking about, Michael, the growing uh, uh, need for uh, some kind of official stronger policy against China. Do you think that there that that somehow or another this is going to become an election issue? And if the Liberals don't intend to do so, do you? Well, it's interesting. Generally speaking, foreign policy is not a determinant of election outcomes. That said, it's clear, as you pointed out, that in, through numerous polls, that Canadians' views of China have soured significantly in the last several years. Sure have. And so the government realizes that. And so they've responded with ratcheting up the rhetoric on China. But as is usual with this government, they've not matched it with particular actions they're going to take uh, to counter these threats. So at this point, it's just a lot of talk and not a lot of action. For example, we're calling on them to withdraw from the, Asia, the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. It's an initiative of China to spread its influence and its model of governance throughout the Indo-Pacific region. We're calling on the Liberal government, to ban Huawei from our 5G network right? Uh, and take a number of other measures like imposing sanctions on officials who are responsible for 
the genocide in Western China who are responsible for these violations of international treaties and for the detention, the unlawful detention of Mr. Kohlberg and Mr. Staber. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need to take a break here, but just uh, by way of being the opposition, uh, it, it's, it's, it, we know you're opposed. That's what you get paid to do. But the, the alternative, what's the, the opposition is supposed to be able to provide an alternative solution. So in, if you were the Minister of, of Foreign Affairs this weekend, Michael Chong, and you had, to, uh, had the ability to draft a new, uh, a new attitude towards China, what would be the first thing that a conservative government would do differently than what's going on right now? Well, there are three things we would do um, working multilaterally with our allies. The first thing we would do is work multilaterally and join the United States and withdraw from the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. The second thing we would do it was we would join with four other allies, the United Kingdom, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand, and put res- restrictions in banning Huawei from the build-out of our core telecommunications network. And the third thing we would do is we would ban products from China that were made with forced labor from the Uyghur people. Mm. And so those are three things we would do immediately that we think are important to signal a new relationship with China. Michael Chong is with us, too. Mr. Chong is the member of Parliament, Parliament rather, for Wellington Halton Hills in Ontario. He is also the official foreign affairs critic for the opposition. And, uh, of course, the opposition, Michael Chong, is having their convention this weekend. On Friday night, uh, your leader, Mr. O'Toole, addressed the convention, saying, uh, among other things, I want to talk about climate change. And in his address on Friday, Mr. O'Toole said the debate on the reality of climate change has to end because it's real. And the next day, 54% of the delegates voted against expanding the conservative position on climate change to include the sentence, we recognize that climate change is real. The conservative party is willing to act. Close quote. They couldn't include that in the statement. This is a bit of sabotage from the inside by the looks of things from the outside, Michael. What did you make of it? Well, I make what I made of it was that we're a party with people with a broad range of views, and clearly there wasn't a consensus on that particular motion. But I think it's equally clear that climate change is real, and that the debate about climate change is over, and that the debate now is not about whether or not climate change is taking place. The debate is about what the policy response should be to climate change, what the government of Canada should be doing to reduce our emissions. No question about that, but still the Conservative Party as an entity leaves itself open to fairly widespread and obvious criticism from its political opponents saying, on the one hand, you you have a policy about climate change, but you can't even convince your own people that it's real. So how, 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 how credible is your climate change policy going to be? Well, I think Aaron made it clear when he ran for the leadership that we he believed that we needed to have a credible policy on climate change. And he won that leadership last August. So, you know, the party gets together and it often has vigorous debates on a range of issues. It takes uh, positions at conventions uh, that often change from convention to convention. So uh, I don't read too much into that motion. The fact is Aaron is the duly elected leader of our party. He won a mandate from the membership of the party, uh, the overall membership of the party, I might add. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's made his position during the leadership and presently clear.
Well, you know, it's, he's got these uh, friendly, hi, I'm the new guy ads running right now. Six months into the job, he should have started that maybe six days or at the very latest six weeks. Six months into it is a little late for, hi, I'm the new guy, especially in parts of Canada like here, where he's very much Aaron who? Does he ever get mad? What does the guy stand for? Uh, and and uh, that that's that's a perception problem that uh, I, I think is going to be exacerbated by the obvious, well, he can't even get his own ducks in a row. Can't run a party, you well, can't I run a country. We well, I think, I think we have to cut, I think we have to cut the leader a bit of slack. I think we have to cut any new leader during this time a bit of slack. And here's why. There's there's two reasons why. First, it's been 12 months since the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all been in lockdowns and restrictions. There've been no public rallies, no public conventions. Everything's being done over Zoom. And so it's it's very difficult for a leader who became leader last August to get out there and meet Canadians. Um, Zoom is a great tool. Uh, WebEx is a great tool. These other Virtual meeting rooms are great tools, but they're no replacement for in-person rallies and in-person gatherings. Right. And so I think that's, that's the one challenge. The other challenge is that, look, the, the government has dominated the airwaves for the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. It, most premiers and the prime minister across this country have seen a boost in their approval ratings. You had an election uh, in B.C. recently where... You know, the approval rating of the premier went up mm-hmm. and he called the snap election and he won that convincingly. And that's true in many other provinces. And so it's difficult for opposition leaders to get attention during a time like this. But I'm confident once we get through this pandemic that we will be in a very good position and that the leader will be well known by the time election day comes around. Well, interesting stuff, Michael. And I suppose it's a question of resources, too, because you've got to stock that war chest before for the actual election funding and all the rest of it. But, you know, just a little advice from an outsider would be spend some money on airtime. Uh, Trudeau, you're quite right, has had absolute unlimited access to the airwaves. He walks a few steps down the, to the, the microphone in front of his cottage and, uh, and, and uh, on, a, on a daily basis for many, many weeks weeks and and whenever he feels like it puts a, a full stop to everything and gets whatever airtime he wants for free so the conservatives in order to offset that to some extent should spend some money and get some ads going beyond hi i'm the new guy a little more substantive and a little more frequency wouldn't hurt at all well thank you for the advice i appreciate that well, you know, oh, just just trying to help out here, Michael, because I don't believe that Justin Trudeau uh, should be getting as sweet and soft and uh, a, a, a ride as he appears to be getting, uh, especially from the media. So, uh, and, and one way to counterbalance that is to simply be in the media more. Yeah, and I we take that point to heart. We've been working hard to be in the media every day. Um, but as you know, we don't decide what gets broadcast on the national networks. We don't decide what gets carried each and every day. That said, we're, we're working in Parliament, we're working uh, over Zoom, and we're you know, gathering virtually to make the case. I, I strongly believe that once we get through the pandemic and the leaders are able to travel to rallies and across the country that when people get to see Aaron O'Toole, they'll like what they see. All right, Michael Chong, thanks very much for this. You're a busy guy this weekend. We do appreciate your taking a little bit of time for us and uh, left the opportunity to speak to you again going forward. 
Thank you for having me. It's Michael Chung, the Member of Parliament from Ontario. He is also the official uh, critic for foreign affairs. It's Wellington Halton Hills in southern Ontario he represents. And our guest is Lucy Cadman. Again, not Lucy Cadman again. <laughs> it is. It's time for our annual bear conversation. Lucy Cadman is the education coordinator with North Shore Bear Society. And it seems to be just about a year ago right now, we had a similar conversation. Good morning, Lucy, and welcome back. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, it's uh, great to have you very with timely. us. <laughs> well, it's great to have you with us. And according to your website, uh, there are, uh, as uh, uh, you wrote, up uh, 10 uh, bears active uh, so far uh, on the North Shore. The uh, 10 bears that are active across North and West Vancouver, uh, barely awake, but already active on the North Shore, is the article at NorthShoreBears.com. Tell us what you know so far, Lucy. Well, it's uh, been quite the season for us. In fact, we had bear activity over the winter across the North Shore, and that was due to accessibility of unnatural food sources. So certainly we were taking calls for bear activity in late December and January and February, and mm. most people expect the bears to be denning. Uh, we've had a very early start to the active season, so we know of nine bears that are in residential areas. We know that these bears have denned for shorter periods and gone to straight back to communities where they found unnatural food sources last season, very unfortunately. Ah, so the, the habit is is the, they recognize that they could get essentially free food. You call it unnatural, as in human-given food. Uh, and that was happening before it came time to go for the big nap. And so they wake up from their, their den experience and go right back to where that uh, human food was available to them before they went to sleep. Absolutely. It's a reliable food source. Um, very little risk for these bears so uh, black bears aren't looking to take big risks so when they're in the community they certainly aren't looking to hurt people or our pets but they do supplement their diet their natural diet with anything that we might leave available to them sure and the strongest attractant is garbage and our organics uh, and that's what the bears have been accessing unfortunately across the north shore Lucy, do we know if there are still people? We have provincial statutes. We have warnings every year from organizations like yours and the Ministry of the Environment and so on. But still, we know people do it. What do you know this year about humans actually feeding bears? Not bears raiding the garbage. That's a whole other story. But humans actually deliberately feeding the bears. Well, we do know that that happens. It's very, very difficult to identify that. It's easier to identify people that are feeding smaller wildlife, such as raccoons. Often neighbors would let us know about that. Sure. It must be said that if we feed those small animals, that brings other animals like coyotes and cougars into the community to seek those opportunities for those uh, raccoons that people might feed. Uh, when it comes to bears, uh, probably the most uh, widely public case of people feeding bears was in West Vancouver a couple of summers ago where a family uh, had fed bears on their property for at least three years. Yeah. We're still seeing issues around that community, which has always been a hotspot for bear activity. That was intentional feeding, and I believe the purpose was just for an Instagram post. It certainly wasn't to try and help these animals. They were feeding them crackers with the plastic still on uh, outside in the garden, uh, holding food up for bears to do tricks. Yeah. Uh, we found all that information on their social media. So we know that that does happen. Uh, but it's the unintentional feeding of bears that really is bringing these animals into the community and keeping them there. But it's not just food. 
uh, bears that are in the community for safety as well. So typically the bears that we see around residential areas are the vulnerable population. Females with cubs, juvenile bears, older bears, and they're forced to uh, be active during the daytime and occupy areas closer to people to avoid the dominant male bears that prefer to live further away from people and are more active at night. So just given the nature of where we are, even if everybody had their garbage secure, picked their fruit trees, took down their bird feeders, we would still see bears traveling through residential areas on the North Shore. Sure. And, and Westwood Plateau. We've got to include Coquitlam in the conversation. I know you're <laughs> the North Shore Black Bear Society, but Westwood Plateau has its fair share too, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah, that's another hot spot area where you've got lots of people and lots of wildlife. Indeed. Uh, one of the and things... Sorry, Lucy, one of the things on your website that I wanted to just pick up on for a couple of minutes, and we're going to talk to the folks out at UBC in a couple of minutes, too, about their survey that I know you know about. So uh, uh, we'll hear more about what the, the, what they want to find out. But you talk on the website at NorthShoreBears.com about responsible coexistence this year as bears wake up. And you go on to talk about how uh, basically tranquil and calm bears are, uh, but humans aren't. Uh, and you talk about the trails and the fact that uh, in the last 12 months of the pandemic, more of us have become outdoorsy simply out of necessity from going nuts. We've gone out hiking just to get out of the four walls that have been boxing us in for close to 12 months. And so when we get out on the trails, well, we, we, aren't, we aren't necessarily the cleanest and easiest and safest people for bears to be around, are we? Well, that's true. So we're encountering so many people that have lived next to regional parks for 20, 30 years and have never explored those trails until Dr. Henry told us to spend more time outside. We've got more people to see these bears. And what happens is when more people spend time on the trails is we are displacing bears. We're moving them on from natural food sources. What we really want to see is that people give these bears respect and space. These bears need time to forage for natural foods. They need time to teach and raise their cubs, teach them all the skills that they need uh, to live independently. So black bears only spend 18 months with their mother before they're sent off to live Mm -hmm. uh, away from her in their own home range. So we're really asking people to be respectful. Uh, When you're out on the trails, make sure that using your voice and that alerts wildlife that people are close by just gives them the opportunity then to step off the trail or very commonly for a black bear they'll climb a tree that avoids a close encounter and if you do see a bear we're asking please don't uh, pressure them for photographs use your voice use a calm tone any language just to identify yourself a person and slowly back away from the bear. Just give them the space and the respect that they deserve. Well, it's interesting because in this article about peaceful coexistence, you talk about, uh, and I'm quoting, we saw a lot of that last year, people cornering bears, tracking bears down for photo opportunities. Lots of people literally chasing those chasing bears. Uh, and that that uh, excitement, that human energy is very, very upsetting to an animal that just wants calm and quiet and would just really prefer to turn around and walk away. Thank you very much. Absolutely. And we're seeing all too often that people are trapping bears in residential areas. So very often we'll be out doing education. There's a bear in the area. So we'll go door to door and and leave information. And we visited uh, 7,000 homes in North Vancouver over the past two years, leaving that information. And we'll find that people are crowding the base of a tree 
in the community and we know that a bear is in that tree there. Now, a black bear won't come down from a tree if people are close by. That's of course a not. safe place. Right. So we're asking people, if a bear's on your street, just come inside, bring pets inside, be nice and quiet, watch from the window, and please don't be chasing these bears down the street. We've seen people chasing bears on foot, in their vehicles, and what that does, it can push some bears to cause property damage. We've had bears chased around the community on the on the North Shore, and the bears are so frightened that they've run through fences oh, sure. and caused property damage. And now property damage is not tolerated by the Conservation Officer Service. So it puts that bear higher up on the list to be killed. So we're asking uh, for the sake of not pushing bears into the path of, of another bear, or a vehicle, into someone's property, sure. that we do never intentionally approach these animals. Okay, and that's fair ball. Uh, and, uh, and by and large, people are cooperative, Lucy. Uh, on the matter of, uh, you, we were talking, you mentioned earlier about cougars, and of course we're seeing that cougars are very aggressive and they'll kill kittens and puppies and small animals and so on. Bears typically aren't that aggressive. They won't go after your cat if it happens to uh, encounter it in your backyard. They just rather walk away, as I understand it. Is that the case? That's correct. When bears are in the community, they're not interested in uh, our pets. Uh, perhaps if you've got chickens, so we... Uh, well, well, uh, that's different. That's uh, lunch. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but the pet food, certainly. So I've seen many uh, photographs of bears hiding in trees uh, and a small cat at the base of the tree. So uh, uh, cats are, uh, are able to tree bears on, on some occasions. Mm. But we do recommend actually raising cats indoors because there are many threats. Uh, to cats. They're very vulnerable. Birds of prey, coyotes, bobcats, cougars, and then poisons. We know that many people uh, are leaving poisons out for rodents on the North Shore, and that's actually affecting uh, our our owl population, domestic pets. Um, So we definitely encourage raising cats inside for that reason. Mm. Okay, Lucy, I'm almost out of time, and I'm just, uh, I'm looking for, as we now know, because I'm looking at your article, we're aware of 10 bears that are active across the District of North Vancouver and the District of West Vancouver this weekend. So uh, any final thoughts? We're going to head out to UBC and learn about their study on bears in a couple of minutes. But as, as the person from the North Shore Bear Society, reminding us yet again, uh, they're, they're back, and most importantly, just give them room, right? That's correct. Make sure that you're not inviting bears to your home by leaving any food available. If you see a bear on your property, go to a safe place like a deck or an open window and set that boundary. Diffuse a firm tone and, and encourage the bear to leave. What we don't want is people uh, allowing bears to be on their property for a photo opportunity. Bears are very intelligent. If we set that boundary from a safe place, they listen and they move on and they will change their routes, providing that you're not feeding them. Interesting stuff. Uh, The website, friends, for lots more information on what's going on with the bear situation around Metro Vancouver and what to do should it be your turn to have a face-to-face with a bear. It's all there at NorthShoreBears.com. Lucy Cadman runs the show over there. It's great to have you back on the show. We we, We should do this again next year, Lucy. Sounds good. Thank you so very much for the opportunity. Oh, it's my pleasure entirely.
We heard from Lucy Cadman and the North Bear Society that they're up, they're awake, and they're active. So there's also a survey going on right now that you can participate in. It's the Human Black Bear Conflict Survey. It's being conducted by the University of British Columbia Faculty of Land and Food Systems under the direction of Dr. Kristen Walker, uh, who is uh, with the Applied Biology Program in the Faculty of Land and Food Systems at UBC, and who is our next guest, Dr. Walker. Kristen, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Tell us about the Human Black Bear Conflict Survey. How long has this been in the works? Um, It's been in the works for the past few months. This is a part of a course that we run at UBC, um, a human wildlife conflict course. So there is a group of undergraduate students who are helping run this project. Um, and it has the survey has been live now for just this past week. Right, and it's it's uh, running and will stay live until, as I understand it, uh, the twenty sixth. Is that still the close date? Yes. Okay. So what now? People listening to us right now on a Sunday morning, enjoying a second cup of coffee, Kristen. How can we help? Well, I would say one of the things that we would like everyone to do is we're we're trying to gather the input of the public to understand kind of the, the current perceptions of different mitigation strategies around black bear conflicts. And so if people are interested in taking the survey, um, one of the ways that they can do it is if you have an Instagram account, you can go to black bear surveys and you should be able to access the survey that way, or we can give you the information to put online as well. Okay. At another point. So uh, Googling the human black bear conflict survey would likely also have it pop up in front of you in a matter of seconds. I would have to check that. (laughs) So so how long would it take for a person to go through the survey and be helpful and respond to all of the issues that you're, you're after? Less than 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Okay. So what do you want to know? What what, do you want to know if I've had any personal one-on-one interaction with a bear in the last uh, uh, several years? And if so, what happened? What are you after? Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the things that we understand is looking at the different municipalities and where people live and do the public perceive black bears to be a problem in their area? Right. And are they reporting sightings? And if they are reporting sightings, even if it's just a sighting, who are they reporting it to? And because one of the things that we want to do is find out if they're not reporting it, what are those barriers? Is it because they don't perceive it as a problem or they're concerned about some of the outcomes if they do report? Interesting. Do you have any idea at all how many how many sightings on an annual basis go unreported? Oh, look, there's a bear. Maybe we should tell somebody. Ah, it's just a bear. No biggie. Yeah, I, we don't know that. And I'm not sure if some of the local organizations, just as which you spoke with, um, might have a better idea of that. Um, but, you know, one of the things we do want to also understand is where does the public get their information regarding coexistence with black bears? Right. So that is, you know, a big piece to helping further education and um, further even some of the, the mitigation strategies to relieve some of the conflicts. Well, and, and of course, that's that's ultimately, I would think, part of the a very big part of this whole project, Kristen, is the because you talk about uh, deaths. We we destroy a lot of bears every year on an annual basis here in and around Metro Vancouver out of necessity in most cases. But what you're uh, uh, trying to achieve here, I would think, uh, uh, among uh, uh, besides gathering knowledge and good information is reducing the number of um, euthanasia of, of bears that occur every year. Sure, we want to get ahead of that, right? And if it can mean that there's more people that are educated on how to reduce those conflicts, 
you know, one of the things that we're asking in here is does the public actually support um, increased kind of enforcement strategies such as ticketing? So mm-hmm. would they be willing to kind of pay higher fines or support higher fines in areas? You know, that's an important strategy, I think, to to helping with relieve some of the um, the conflicts. Indeed. So if if there was because, of course, now we've we've had 12 months of a whole other set of fines and unexpected uh, realities to deal with with the pandemic. And so we Mm -hmm. have we have a sense of public reaction here, Kristen. Uh, Some people wouldn't snitch on a neighbor if they had a a house full of people when they weren't supposed to. Other people would pick up that phone and and have the cops Mm -hmm. over there in 30 seconds or less. Well, that same that same ethic, that same mindset applies uh, when it uh, when it comes to conflicts with bears, doesn't it? So we're, we're just, uh, I'm curious uh, how or what you understand the sentiment to be today before you get the survey results with respect to, okay, if you need to, slap some heavier fines on some of these people. They deserve it. You know, and just from talking with people, I think one of the things that we're seeing is it a lot of responses come back to it's not the bears, it's humans. It's human behavior. Well, no we need kidding. To change the human behavior. <laughs> so um, how do we do that? How do we work as a collective to, to ensure that we can coexist? You know, we, have, we actually have a, another survey just like this related to coyotes. Um, that is another area that is of kind of interest of mine and an area that we would like to see, you know, how can we coexist um, with urban wildlife? just in general. Ah, and uh, are, is, is that survey also the Coyote survey up and running right now? That survey is going to be released this week. Ah, okay. So uh, the UBC Bear survey uh, is is a, about understanding public perceptions. Basically, you need to know how people who live here with the bears want uh, our, our elected officials and conservation authorities to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, are you expecting anything uh, in terms of noticeable attitude changes beyond what you already understand our attitude towards bears to be? Well, I would say that's not a part of what we're looking at as an attitude shift. We're trying to understand the current perception of what is is happening. And are we as tolerant as we'd like to think we are? Yes, I think that would be one thing that we could hopefully try to pull out of this survey. Okay. Well, uh, again, uh, I would. Uh, I'm grateful for your time. I wish you and your undergraduate team considerable success with this, Kristen. This is important work. And uh, uh, what again? You know, if, if 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 it makes our ability to live with bears and kill fewer of them on an annual basis, if we can pull that out of this survey project, I'd say you'd uh, performed quite an accomplishing, uh, quite an accomplishment. Thank you. So again, uh, you're looking for volunteers, and you uh, send us send us somewhere, Kristen. Um, on Instagram, you can go to Black Bear Surveys. Okay, that's a great place to start. Uh, again, thank you for joining us this morning. Thumbs up for the good work, and we wish you and your team well. Thank you. And we'll talk again after you have some results. How about that? That sounds great. Okay, we have a deal. Dr. Kristen Walker at the UBC uh, Bear Program. It's the Human Bear Conflict Survey. Google it if you don't have Instagram and jump on board. They'd love to hear from you too. Tony Juventu is with us. Mr. Juventu is the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of British Columbia. He is also the longtime Condo Smarts columnist for the Vancouver Sun and Province. Tony, good morning. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us. 
Hey, it's a pleasure. How are you doing this morning, Sterling? I'm very well, thanks, Tony. I, I want to talk about uh, a column t- that you've got in the paper this weekend about owner-occupant education and how important it is. But I'd like to begin, Tony, with a story that was in the paper about a week or so ago. Uh, and this is something that you and I have talked about countless times on the airwaves, smoking and uh, dealing with uh, neighbors who smoke and complaining to the Strata Council about those people who smoke and so on. Well, this story uh, went on. A condo dweller went to court after the Strata stopped investigating her complaints about smelling tobacco smoke. She complained 150 times over three years. She sued for 30 grand. She won $400. So she didn't get what she wanted, but she did get satisfaction action. Is it a darn shame that it had to go to that? Uh, it is unfortunate, but, you know, I think people forget that um, strata councils and they're often afraid of or intimidated into enforcing bylaws against their neighbours. And so that's often a bit of a challenge for everybody. So it is unfortunate when it goes to that. But the nice thing is that with the Civil Resolution Tribunal, that it really is an easy, convenient access right. for owners and tenants to be able to get these issues resolved. Yeah, and, and that's that's the point here. She sued for, for $30,000, but was only awarded 400 in damages. And it wasn't court as you and I know it. The court was, as you said, the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which is a, a, a mediation service created specifically for tenants and strata uh, people in B.C., isn't it, Tony? It is, but it actually is much broader than that. It now does small claims under $5,000, and it's really intended to take off a lot of the, the very common law disputes that we deal with in day-to-day life. So, And it is, it is enforceable through the courts. Uh, when you get a decision, you can register the decision in the Supreme Court, and that order can be enforced. So, so it is it is very much a um, a, ca- a more casual process. It's right. less formal. Um, the nice thing about um, uh, tribunals is that they have more flexibility in the sense that um, while they're bound to common law, they're not necessarily bound to each other's decisions. So the details, the circumstances, the evidence from decision to decision can vary greatly. Interesting. Do you have legal recourse, for example, if you're a dissatisfied party under a, a, a tribunal resolution? Uh, can you appeal it to a court? You can appeal it to the Supreme Court, to the appeals court, only if there was an error in law. Okay. So, and it's a very short window of doing this. Um, and and you know it, you know the old adage that we used to we used to always go by of you know whatever you put in is what's going to come out. If you're making an application, it's important for you as the applicant to make sure the evidence that you have is um, is credible, that you have good evidence, you have documented evidence, and she did have documented sure. evidence. Um, and the amount of the penalty is really not the issue here as much as the order for compliance right. as well. I think that's that's even more compelling here because if the if the Strata Corporation and the person causing the smoke and offending don't comply, she does have a next step. And that's the enforcement of the order through Supreme Court, which becomes then much more compelling for everyone. And so the idea being that you really don't want it to go to that, because if it does go to Supreme Court, uh, a person could end up having to sell their condo uh, if indeed they didn't uh, want to comply with the smoking regulations. That'd be a pretty drastic measure, but ultimately that could be the consequence of this. Yeah. You know, the other consequence I think that strata corporations are really forgetting about, and we see this with human rights decisions as well, uh, where strata councils are just being mean-spirited, is where they, um, when you have a decision against your corporation, that decision now has to be included 
on a Form B information certificate perpetually. Ah. So you start stacking up these decisions and buyers come along and look at the Form Bs and they see five or seven um, complaints where the corporation has really been in in the wrong and had a judgment against them. And between human rights and Supreme Court and the tribunal, suddenly you have a very undesirable property. Um, It hurts property values. It may, in fact, risk your ability to get directors and officers liability insurance for the corporation. So it it really has far-reaching consequences for everyone. Yeah, Tony, let's put the shoe on the other foot if you don't mind because you've really opened a door there talking about buyers or prospective buyers and we're going through a real binge of buying right now around metro vancouver my gosh prices are certainly reflective of that but the activity level is way up right now and so imagine what it's going to be like when even more of us get vaccinated but buyers need to be aware uh, as as the old saying goes but the buyers especially when buying into a strata environment there are certain things that they perhaps don't even know that they should investigate but well once you get serious about a property and well this could be it then there are a few things that you need to look at including the record not only of that particular property but of the strata council that's in charge of the property including as you just said some of their court cases but but there's also a, a little matter of their cash reserves they have to have that information at your disposal if you're a buyer of a condo in a building so you you get to ask that of the seller don't you what's your cash reserve situation like well your your first draw is you're going to request um, the information certificate because it will give you um, a substantial amount of information court decisions number of rentals in the building what right. the balance of the reserve funds are what your parking um, and storage locker assignments are and that unto itself is a, a whole different discussion because um, we see constant misinformation or incorrect information getting put on these forms. And then again, the corporation is being sued by the buyer who bought in to discover that they thought they had two parking spaces and then they move in and then they're told afterwards, oh no, we made an error. You don't have those two parking spaces. Oh, brother. So all that, in, all that information is pretty critical. But the other two pieces of information, I think right now more than ever that are critical, ask for a copy of the summary of the insurance policy. Oh yeah. It, it, we're, we're coming up up to an amendment to the Form B in the next probably six months on the regulations where the summary is going to be a mandatory requirement now. So along with the depreciation report, ask for the summary because the summary is going to tell you, you know, if this strata's um, insurance deductible is $100,000 or $250,000 for water escape, pretty good in- indication that there's a condition here that is exposing them to risk or they have a claims history. And the other thing you can ask for is a claims history for the last five years because that'll give you a little bit of an indication of what's been going on in the building as well. And then scan those minutes, get copies of the annual meeting minutes and at least the last three years of council minutes and read the minutes. But here's the, here's the catch-22. We're in a hot market, yeah. and now we're back to the problem where it's seven days to get your Form B um, or 14 days to get your Form B. Nobody's got the time to wait because we're back to bidding wars. Sure. And so we're back to the age-old problem of do I actually wait um, and get the documents? Or, you know, the other alternative is make a good offer, but make a condition, a review of documents. Sure. Okay. Uh, and- and- 
and that's know, fair. Buy yourself a little bit of time, right? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Is a description of that list that you've just run through available to our listeners who didn't have a chance to jot them all down? Lots of people are shopping for condos right now, Tony. It's a big thing all over again. And look at those new units going in around Brentwood and stuff. My goodness. So is does your website have that short list of documents? Any prospective condo or strata environment buyer should ask to see before putting any money down. Yeah, it does. And if you go into the um, the website where you can just search, just search buying a condo or buying a, a new home. Okay. And there'll be and there'll be a scatter of documents that come up. Uh, it it um, but, but again, a little common sense. What do we really know, need to know about insurance, money, building conditions? Yep. Those are the three big things that that, that as buyers we need to know. And you know, and end up with a number of horror stories where people just bid overbid each other, um, ended up buying, and then discover that there's a, a serious condition with the property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, that, of course, is a consequence of, of, of jumping into a bidding war with uh, with no ability to, to, to do anything other than compete. And so the subject, writing a subject into, into the offer is not a bad idea. Uh, Tony's excellent website, by the way, friends, is CHOA, short for Condominium Homeowners Association, C-H-O-A dot C-A. And bc.ca. Sorry, Tony. No, that's great. Joa.bc.ca is a terrific uh, website for people in strata environments for any number of reasons. And and as Tony says, if you just search buying a condo, all of those documents that he says are pretty smart to check out before plunking any money down will pop up for you. And it's time for the arts corner of our Sunday program. And uh, it's a pleasure to welcome our next guest back. Donna Spencer is the artistic producer with the Fire Hall Arts Center, has been a guest on this corner of our program before. Donna, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Great to hear from you. Well, it's good to hear from you, too, because you and uh, some of your colleagues in the arts community have organized or are in the process of organizing a meeting with the British Columbia Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sport, as well as Dr. Bonnie Henry and her deputy, Dr. Brian Emerson. I know that you've been lobbying for this meeting for a while. How are you doing on actually arranging a time and a date for a face-to-face? Well, it's, uh, we're really happy to say that it has been set and that we will be meeting with the Ministry of Tourism and Dr. Henry and maybe Dr. Emerson on, uh, uh, coming up in, uh, on March the 30th. And hopefully we'll have uh, a great discussion and be able to get some answers to some of the questions that we have. Well, what is, what's the number one question? What's the burning issue that you and your colleagues in the arts community have for the Minister and Dr. Henry? Well, of course, just like every other business, I think we're really concerned about when we'll be re- able to reopen safely. Sure. Uh, and particularly, this has come up because, of course, uh, they're looking at the reopening of churches uh, uh, outside, but eventually indoor services as well. And mm-hmm. since the arts, uh, a lot of our performing arts venues are very similarly designed to how churches are. Uh, and given that the arts, actually given that theater came out of the church way, way, way back when, we're curious about when it, when we'll be able to open and take care of our uh, patrons and our uh, artists as well. And what is the status this weekend, uh, this morning, Donna, in terms of the Fire Hall and all of the other live theater venues across British Columbia? Are you today completely closed? Uh, we are all completely closed in that we are not having audiences into our venues. Uh, we have not had audiences into our venues since... Uh, 
uh, November at the closure then. Uh, what a lot of our groups have been trying to do is record and stream performances, mm-hmm. but live performances are very different from stream performances. So there has been a bit of success there, but it's not really uh, what we are expert at, although some of the projects have been fabulous to watch. Um, that's not what we do. We yeah. bring people together. Well, and, and you know, and we've seen some clever, uh, creative attempts at circumventing the rules. We had the Rio Theater uh, become a sports bar because then they could open and sell drinks and snacks and not movies and, uh, you know, trying to dance around the rules and with, with some degree of success. But, uh, you know, you talk to other organizations. I talked to the folks at Metro Theater just a day or two ago. And like many other arts organizations, they are just struggling. They've had production after production canceled, postponed. Uh, the, the cash flow is all but gone. And I'm assuming at Fire Hall, it's the same deal, right, Donna? It's exactly the same deal. I mean, we're actually, I think there's a lot of groups that are very um, precarious right now yeah. um, in terms of, uh, I would say that the Ministry of Tourism, Arts, Culture and, and Sports have actually um, brought in a little uh, more funding towards the arts. This happened last spring. Uh, it's it's to help us get through this, but we've been this has been going on for a year. So not only are our um, infrastructure starting to get a little shaky, uh, also the artists that are out there have not been working for a year. So they've been trying to do whatever they can, but a lot of them are trained to as professional actors or professional lighting designers or costume designers, and they have not been working. Indeed. So, and all you can say, yeah, and all you can say is thank God for the movie business because a lot of those people from the theater and arts community are finding at least temporary work in the movie business, which is just flourishing right now, or especially around Metro Vancouver. Lots and lots of it's a very labor-intensive industry, as you well know. So at least some people from the arts community are picking up a buck or two working in film on a short-term basis. Donna, I'm curious about the argument that you're going to propose. For example, we know that yes, they're limited in terms of their capacity, and they're not making much money. But restaurants and some bars have, in fact, been open all along, all through all of this stuff that has seen your venue and many other arts venues closed. And uh, I was talking to our movie guy, Rick Forchuk, about this this morning. He said, I've only been to two movies in a year. And both times I went to the cinema, I felt completely safe because of the incredible work that the people who run the, ran those theaters did to make me feel safe. And you and the arts community have done the same at each and every performance venue in the province, haven't you? That's what we've done. We have uh, seating plans in place. We have uh, COVID protocols in place when we were open briefly up until last November, from July to last November. All of those things sprang into action. We were asking people to wear masks way before it was compulsory. Yep. Uh, we have been very careful about what we've done. So what, we've done, what we did do was take forward to, to public health the idea that uh, there's so much similarities between how we actually handle our patrons in terms of uh, what the restaurants and bars are now having to do, that we were already doing that. So we wanted to be considered in the same way as they were considered. Um, we also uh, have uh, protocols in place as to how we take care of our actors or our dancers or whoever, so they are kept safe and mm-hmm. they are kept away from the audience. So all of that has been put in place. Uh, we've been working with ActSafe BC. ActSafe is uh, an organization that's put in, in place floor plans and uh, COVID protocols and assisted province uh the all of the theaters and performing arts venues across the province and sure. if anybody doesn't know uh have has questions they should speak to act safe 
So as far as Dr. Henry is concerned, because you're hoping that she'll be able to attend the meeting along with the minister, so the minister may have something to say on the funding side, but it's Dr. Henry who's going to make the call on the opening or not of uh, performance venues. And uh, have you got plenty of bullets in your gun for uh, talking in terms of (laughs) points to make in the argument with Dr. Henry? Because she's pretty dug in on some of this stuff. Uh, yes, I think we actually do have some very good information to offer to Dr. Henry. And, and this particular meeting is being hosted by the Ministry of Tourism and Arts and Culture, but it's not about getting more funding at this point. It's actually about how do we get open so our patrons are safe or seem to be safe by Dr. Henry. Uh, we know we can keep them safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, there weren't any breakouts when we were open. Right. So we're curious about what it is that we need to, what is the tipping point? We know that um, uh, there's great concern about the, the variants right now, but we want to understand what we can do, what more we can do to ensure that we can um, be open and serve the people of BC in the way that we usually do. We're, we're huge economic stimulators. Yeah. We're huge emotional health stimulators, too. So we're kind of uh, waiting to see what it is that will make the difference. And we do have someone... We do have a little small group that is working with public health now on those various things. So hopefully, um, and I don't, I don't think we'll be reopening tomorrow, right, but right. hopefully there will be a plan that we can put in place, a staggered plan, so that we can actually plan for the future, because that's a big thing. We can't just open tomorrow. Sure. We, we need time. We need to be able to put together a plan. And right now is when we would be putting together our plans for next fall. Well, there are a lot of people in the arts community really pulling for you and the team that's going to sit across the table from Dr. Henry and Minister Mark uh, when that meeting comes up soon. And we wish you considerable success, Donna. Thanks for joining us again this morning. It's great to have you back and uh, to take the pulse of the arts community. And here's hoping that uh, we get some satisfaction from your next meeting. Thanks so much, Sterling, and thanks for covering this. It's really important. That part is our pleasure entirely. Good luck to you, Donna. It is 9.56. That is our program for this weekend. Thanks to Julie Wong, who's moving to the Simi Sarah Morning Show for a few weeks on account of a birth in the family. So Ray will be with us for the next few weeks. Thank you for joining us. Have a terrific week. We'll see you next Saturday morning. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.